rules, rules and more rules. The book of Exodus is in full flow. Laws are flying from the mountain and Moses is making multiple mental notes as God continues to lay down the codes for life. The general sense of these laws is that they instruct the people of Israel to lead lives that are dramatically different to those of the Canaanites whose lands they are about to seize. These laws range from how to treat slaves, how to settle disputes and how to lay claim to a potential spouse. They appear not to replace any pre-existing code. The Israelites don't bring any laws with them out of Egypt. These are the rules that continue to shape the lives of many Jewish and Muslim people today and place God front and centre of Israel's world. You want religion? This is where the Bible spreads it on thick and fast. And though it may not make one of the most page-turning sequences in the Bible, its detail and the light it shines on Bronze Age culture is almost mesmerising. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible Episode 22, Blood in the Bowl. Welcome back to what I think is the only podcast that describes the Bible's action without any deep insight or directional interpretation. In other words, I'm not preaching or teaching, I'm simply telling the story using different words and adding the odd comment where helpful. So thanks for joining me. And thanks for making this podcast number one in Apple's UK religion chart. Who would have thought that when we started out 22 weeks ago? If this is your first episode, you might want to go back to the beginning to get yourself a little context. Otherwise, don't worry, we're always happy to have day trippers along for the ride. So, we're letting the handbrake off and continuing to freewheel through the 14th century BC. The scene? A mountain in the Sinai Peninsula. Moses is on top of Mount Sinai and according to the book of Exodus, God is up there with him, dictating the law. God has just explained that his name must not be abused. And in the same breath, the Israelites are told to respect their earthly leaders. This may be a nod to Moses, or a look further ahead to the time of Israel's judges, or even its kings. Stinginess has no place in Israelite culture, particularly towards God. Offerings need to be given in full, and every firstborn boy or animal is to be given to God when it is eight days old. The animals are to be killed, but what happens to the baby boys, God doesn't yet specify. Keeping his nation pure is also important to God. If Israel is to remain set apart as a holy people, it needs to follow certain dietary rules. One of these is not to eat any animal that has been killed by predators. This is because the blood will not have been properly drained, and the wild beasts that savaged it are seen as unclean. It's possibly this double negative that makes it worthy of including in this list, as it protects unsuspecting yet opportunistic Israelites from putting waste-not-want-not ahead of their religious code. Instead, God has a simple instruction for roadkill, throw it to the dogs. Justice appears close to God's heart, and he needs his people to appreciate and understand the importance of treating others fairly. Lying to either protect someone or indict them is forbidden by God, as it still is by most of the world's judiciaries. 
People are warned to go with their conscience rather than the crowd, as simply following the prevailing mood might lead to someone perverting the course of justice. Israelites are warned not to favour someone just because they are poor or come across as the underdog. Justice needs to keep its eyes open. Opportunism is also looked down on. There is no finders keepers in Israel. Consequently, an ox or donkey wandering in the road isn't to be seen as a freebie, even when it belongs to an enemy. An effort should be made to return it to its rightful owner. Similarly, if an enemy's donkey has fallen down under a heavy load, the correct response is not to laugh, point or otherwise gloat, but to get stuck in with the effort to get the beast back on its feet again. Doing so prevents ongoing feuds and allows people who don't see eye to eye to acknowledge the decency in one another. Although the poor are not to be given the benefit of the doubt in a lawsuit, they're not to be taken advantage of nor denied justice simply because they have no means. No Israelite is to get caught up in a scam that involves laying the blame on an innocent person, especially if that person is executed as a result. God vows not to pardon anyone who attempts this manoeuvre. Understandably, bribes are a no-no. Corruption of any kind appears detestable to God, who tells Moses that this kind of behaviour blinds otherwise honest people and fails to defend the innocent. For the record, the world's most corrupt country is currently Iraq, which is ironic given that Islam believes in the laws handed to Moses on the mountain that forbid bribery. Again, foreigners are to be treated fairly, as the escapees from Egypt know only too well how it feels when this doesn't happen. The Sabbath is to be kept work-free, and all Israelites must celebrate the three major festivals of Passover, Pentecost and Tabernacles. God goes into a little more detail about Sabbaths. Every seventh year, the Israelites are to leave their fields unploughed so that the poor can grow or gather things for themselves, and the wild animals can graze there. The same applies to vineyards and olive groves, and again, this law shows compassion to those who have less and might otherwise be marginalised. The reason given for keeping Saturday's work free is to give animals, slaves and foreign workers a break so that they can come back feeling refreshed, a ruling that is still in place across much of the world. Like an almost permanent refrain, God reminds Moses yet again to keep away from foreign gods and to not let their names contaminate his nor any of his people's lips. God then works through the three festivals which he expects his people to celebrate. Passover has been covered already and God makes it known that no one is allowed to appear before him at any of these celebrations empty-handed. Pentecost is a harvest festival and God expects the food that is collected first to be brought to him. In-gathering is another harvest celebration and is also known as tabernacles and all Israel's men are expected to make an appearance before God at all three events. Here in the desert it's relatively straightforward but by the time Israel is spread over a wide geographical area making the effort to come to the temple in the city of Jerusalem is still seen as essential. When people come to the temple with their Passover offerings, they must remember that no yeast is to be brought to God and that no part of the lamb should be left until the following morning. There is an element of repetition to the laws. Just as the rules about worshipping other gods is mentioned more than once, other laws are given multiple outings. Here, the Israelites are told for a second time that the first of their crops are to be brought to God. As an almost random aside, 
a young goat may not be cooked in its mother's milk. Bible experts believe that this has something to do with pagan religious rites, where the milk was possibly sprinkled on the land to make it fertile for the next harvest. No trappings of any other religions have any place in Israel, and so this bizarre practice is officially taboo. The lawgiving now enters a temporary hiatus, while God explains to Moses what lies ahead for the Israelites. God announces that his angel is due to make a reappearance. Like a divine bodyguard come tour guide, this incarnation of the Almighty will guard the Israelites on their journey and bring them safely into their new home. We've covered the God angel in earlier episodes and pointed out what a chin-scratcher it is to Bible fans. Anyone who knows their New Testament will be aware of the Holy Trinity that is God, Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In this Old Testament proto-Trinity, Jesus is swapped out for an angel who appears to look human but who acts like he is God. The people are ordered to fall in line behind the angel, listen carefully and do everything that he tells them as he and God are one. If they comply, the Israelites can expect God to be an enemy to their enemies and to oppose anyone who gets in their way. The angel will go ahead of them and bring them successfully into Canaan, despite it already being home to a number of established tribal kingdoms who he vows to wipe out. However, all these kingdoms have their own religious codes, and yet again the Israelites are forbidden to be seduced by their neighbours' pagan gods. Instead, they are to demolish any manifestation of pagan worship in their new homeland, such as altars or other sacred stones. The carrot in front of the donkey is an attractive one. If the people worship God, he will bless them, take away their sickness, and no one in Israel will have to endure miscarriage or infertility. With no illness or other obstacles getting in their way, everyone will live out the full years of their life. This passage in Exodus has encouraged believers in the prosperity gospel, where sickness and poverty are seen as the byproducts of a lack of faith. It's such a fascinating angle on Christianity that it is most definitely worth a detour. The prosperity gospel really can make you rich, if you run a church that promotes prosperity theology, that is. The basic message is that God wants everyone to be blessed with financial wealth and physical health, and that the way to ensure both of these is through faith and monetary donations, most often to a church that encourages this kind of belief. Sickness and poverty are seen as curses that can only be broken by giving money, imagining themselves as well or affluent, and positive confession, a practice where people believe that they can speak positive outcomes into existence. Prosperity theology has its roots in the Protestant work ethic. This is the thinking where Christians who believe that they are the people who God has chosen to be saved need to demonstrate some outward sign that they have been blessed. Gaining wealth through hard work provides them with this. The first prosperity gospel preachers emerge in mid-1950s America and the practice flourishes under the Pentecostal movement thanks to some high-profile supporters with hugely popular TV shows. Despite Jesus famously suggesting that it is actually much harder for the wealthy to get into heaven than it is for those with nothing, prosperity theology continues to run amok through the world's churches. A 2006 poll by Time magazine found that an astonishing 17% of American Christians identify explicitly with the prosperity gospel. However, 
many in the church not only see the practice as unbiblical, but they see it as a theology that exploits the poor, encouraging them to donate money which they can't afford in the expectation that they are part of some kind of heavenly investment scheme, whose payouts are in this life rather than the next. It hasn't helped that several champions of prosperity theology have been charged with financial fraud. With its focus on poorer people, the practice has been seen by many as manipulative and has been accused of complicity in the foreclosure crisis of the late 2000s, as people with not enough money to buy a home went ahead anyway in the belief that God would bankroll them. According to the Bible, Jesus lives and dies never having amassed any material wealth. Instead, he maintains that there will always be poor people, never once suggesting that these are simply poor people who would be rich if they prayed hard enough, thought positively enough and gave their leaders enough. Back on the mountain, God shares his plans to help expedite the Israelites' safe arrival in their new home. According to Exodus, he promises to send terror ahead of them to create confusion and fear in the people already living in Canaan, making conquest and settlement a lot less trouble for them. These nations will turn and run, as if being chased by hornets, he says, but the conquest will be a gradual one. If the takeover happens too fast, there's a risk that there won't be enough Israelite manpower to cultivate the whole of Canaan and defend it against predators. God promises to give them their new land little by little until their numbers are up. The future borders of Israel are given in diagonals, from the Red Sea in the southeast to the Mediterranean in the northwest, and from the Sinai Desert in the southwest to the River Euphrates in the northeast. It's a vast territory, encompassing some 56,000 square miles of land that lies between Egypt and northern Mesopotamia. God will drive out Canaan's tribes, he tells Moses, and the Israelites are forbidden to enter into any contract with them. No Canaanite is allowed to remain within Israel's borders because of the temptation these kingdoms offer to the new arrivals who might be seduced by their pagan gods. God's genuine concern appears to be that the multiple gods of Canaan's tribes will provide a constant and fatal attraction to his people. Wanting to make an impression on the whole of Israel, God summons Moses, Aaron and his two older sons, as well as 70 of the nation's elders, to the foot of the mountain. However, only Moses is allowed to approach God. The others must remain at a distance. Moses retraces his steps to where the others are waiting, and on hearing everything that God has just told their leader, the elders agree wholeheartedly to follow God's rules. Satisfied that his people are all on side, Moses writes the laws down for posterity. Early the next morning, Moses builds an altar on the slopes of the mountain and raises 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. He then sends some young men to sacrifice bulls, places the animal's blood in bowls and splashes half of it on his altar. After he has done this, he reads out God's new rules and the people agree to place obedience to God paramount in their lives. Once the tribes have agreed that all God's laws make perfect sense, Moses sprinkles the remaining blood from the bowls on everyone who has gathered around the altar. This may seem grotesque to modern readers, but it seems that animal blood plays a part in official agreements in the Near East around this time. The sense is that the blood from a single animal unites God and the people, as half is splashed on the altar and the other half on the elders. 
After the ceremony, Moses takes Aaron and his sons and the 70 elders up the mountain to meet God. God appears on a pavement of lapis lazuli, as blue as the sky. This semi-precious rock was being mined in Afghanistan as far back as 7000 BC. And whether the plinth on which God appears is made from this or simply bears its colour, readers are not told. Exodus reports that no harm comes to the men who have suddenly found themselves in God's presence. Instead, they all enjoy a meal together to formally rubber stamp the new rules. God then asks Moses to come further up the mountain to receive a set of rules inscribed in stone and Moses sets off with his assistant Joshua, leaving the rest of the men to wait for them. He delegates any decision-making to Aaron and Hur while he is gone and continues his ascent. Readers are told that the mountain is covered in cloud for six days and that it is on the seventh day that God finally calls to Moses from within the cloud. From below, the Israelites see a great fire on the mountaintop where Moses enters the cloud and climbs into the unknown where he will remain for the next 40 days. At the time that God is talking to Moses, there is no central place for people to bring their offerings to God. However, God appears to have a plan. For the people to be able to create a suitable worship venue, God needs to lay his hands on some appropriate construction materials. He tells Moses to put out an appeal, asking people to contribute whatever they feel moved to give. What he is looking for is gold, silver and bronze, and cotton in the rarest and most expensive three colours, scarlet, purple and blue. He needs fine linen, goat hair and ram skins dyed red. He needs other durable animal hides, acacia wood and olive oil for lamps. He needs spices for the anointing oil and the incense and precious stones for the ephod and breastplate that will be worn by the high priest. It's quite a big ask for a bunch of escapees who left Egypt with only what they could carry, but God is confident that Israel will provide what is needed to build what he describes as a sanctuary or tabernacle. He promises that this is where he will live and that the Israelites are to build the tent and its furnishings according to a template which he will provide. Exodus has already alluded to a sacred chest in which the Ten Commandments and the jar of manna are to be kept and now readers learn about its construction. The box should be 3 foot 9 inches long, 2 feet 3 inches wide and 2 feet high and it is to be plated in gold both inside and out. Gold rings are to be attached to its base at each corner and through these are to be pushed carrying poles, also made of acacia wood and covered in gold. The poles are to remain in place, ready to move the ark wherever the Israelites are directed and when God hands him the tablets inscribed with the law, Moses is to place them inside it. The ark is to have a solid gold cover and at either end of this lid should be fashioned two cherubim, the fierce winged angels last seen guarding the gates to the Garden of Eden. These should have their wings up, forming a kind of arch where the tips touch, while they themselves look down, no doubt because the contents of the box are so holy. The lid is to be placed on top of the ark, and God promises that he will meet Moses in the space beneath the cherub's wings. It is here that he will share the rest of the laws with him, he says. The golden cover of the ark is known outside of the Bible as the mercy seat, probably because God's mercy is unleashed when sacrificial blood is sprinkled on it.
the time being, the laws that instruct Israel's people on how to live socially aware lives in a nomadic community are paused as God lays down plans that reach the limits of human imagination and ability. These are the buildings, furnishings and accoutrements which his people need in order to worship him appropriately. And they are fabulous. Only the finest materials and the most skilled craftsmen suffice. The rules impress on the people that God has high standards. He is God. Only the best will do. There are no shortcuts and there is no one else who they can call on to bring his plans to life. It's a tough ask and no one must feel this more than the man taking down the dictation on the mountain. The blueprint for worship that lives on in today's synagogues, churches and mosques is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments and feedback to contact at holybible.com.